we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verses 12 through 23. This is week 11 in a 12-week series. <clears throat> in an essence, content, the sermon is basically over. Um, Jesus is making his concluding remarks, and he does it with a kind of a synopsis of everything he's been saying with now a call to make a decision, Okay. Let me, for context's sake, remind you again of the big picture of where this all fits. This sermon is a description of the way kingdom people are to believe and behave when Jesus is our king. That's what we're here for. That's why you came and sang these songs. That's why we took communion. We're celebrating one person and one event. Jesus died for sinners. That's what this whole thing's about. And this is a description of what it looks like for us to live under his rule and his leadership in our life. Kingdom citizens, right? All of his instructions, all of his commands that he's given us here are the ways of Jesus. They're his description of happiness. They're his description of sin. They're his description of love. They're his description of treasure and what we should treasure. All of it, all of it, in, in essence, is a description of when we are no longer trying to pretend to be our own God. When we come to our spiritual senses and say, it isn't me, it's you, therefore, and you start to live out of that narrative, okay? Because we know what it's like to live without Jesus as our king. You take everything we've learned in the Sermon on the Mount, flip it upside down, that's how we live. That's how it will go. I won't ever be broken over my sin, which is how he started this sermon. That's not going to happen. I won't ever be meek or humble. I'll never hunger for righteousness. I won't extend mercy to other people. I won't live for anything but myself, and on and on it goes. That's how I will live if Jesus isn't my king. And we've met a few people like that in our life, haven't we? We're even related to some. Okay. Um, that's who we are without Jesus. So in essence, um, we have in front of us in this Sermon on the Mount is basically everything Jesus wants you to know how to live under his lordship. It's like the manual. In fact, I'll just tell you this. There's lots, there's lots to the story of God and his gospel, but if you folded these three chapters up and stuck it in your pocket and made it your mission to live it out, that's all you need to live as he wants you to live. That's it. It's the essence of the ethic of Jesus as Lord in your life, Okay. I, in my lifetime, many times, have been accused of many, many things. Um, my wife accuses me of being a bad listener, okay? I go, come on, babe, I'm not a bad listener. I'm a fast listener. It's helping everybody out here, right? You get the point. I, I, I understand where she's coming from. And I try to figure out, when she says that, why that might be true of me. And I, I, I've got a statement, and maybe you can relate to this. It's because I'm a bottom line guy. I just want the bottom line. Don't tell me everything that's wrong or how we got there. Just tell me what needs fixing, right? Amen. Let's, let's pray. We're going home. It's all you need. <laughs> that's, that's what I am. So if, if you at all share with me the bottom line personality, then you're going to love verse 12 because verse 12 is Jesus' bottom line on everything that he's been saying. Look at what verse 12 says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, everything that the king has demanded for his people in regards to relationships to one another is wrapped up in this one easy-to-remember, pithy little sentence. It's the bottom line. You want to do it like the king? Treat others as you want to be treated. Simple, simple statement. We know this as the golden rule, don't we? I found in my reading this week that the golden rule started, that name started about 200 years after the life of Jesus 
when a Roman emperor was so impressed, a non-believing Roman emperor was so impressed with the words of Jesus that he had them inscribed in gold on his wall. And, and that's like us too, isn't it? We're way more inclined to make bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets out of the things that Jesus says than to write them on the heart, aren't we? And, and that's, that's kind of the challenge in this writing. Will you believe? Will you trust? Okay, we're not here for that in this, in this understanding. We're here because we've been saved and transformed by the work of Christ and his spirit, right? To walk in newness of life. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what church is about. That's what Jesus and salvation is about. New life, transformed life. And transformed life looks like Jesus behaves here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it is, okay? To learn the way of the master and to follow him in everything. Verse 12 is his summation of that effort. It's, it's the same thing when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And you, you know this. He says, it's the love of the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, you can't obey the first commandment without doing the second. The second is how you do the first commandment. So I want to take some time to look closely at this one verse, this, this golden rule, and pull apart some things that I think are pretty obvious here, three particulars that I want you to notice about this. Here they are, and I'll, we'll dig through them in a minute. Number one, it's an offensive rule. Number two, it's an exclusive rule. Number three, sounds like double talk, it's an inclusive rule. Let me walk you through this. First of all, it's an offensive rule. Verse 12, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, what's this next phrase? Do also to them. You should circle that word do. Almost every religion in the world has a similar command, but every religion in the world approaches it from the negative. In other words, don't do bad things to people. Jesus does everything upside down compared to the world. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want you not to do bad things. I want you to do good things to the world, right? He's not trying to stop certain behaviors and actions. He's trying to start certain behaviors and actions in his, in his people. Do also to them. Everything that Jesus has been saying all throughout this sermon about anger and adultery and divorce and vows and revenge and loving your enemies and judging other people, as a kingdom citizen, we are to go on the offensive, with those issues towards others. Action, treat people, treat people the way you want to be treated. Um, you might want to pat yourself on the back for refraining from treating people poorly, but that's not at all what Jesus suggests here. He commands so much more. Be proactive is his point towards other people. Don't stop at not striking out at other people. Watch this, forgive. Right? You, can, you can be happy that you didn't knock them out. That's not what Jesus says here. I want you to go all the way. I want you to forgive them. Let it go. That's what I want. Turn the other cheek. That's what I'm asking. Be proactive, all right? Don't stop at not hating. Here's one. Love your enemy. You see the standard? It's, it's huge. It's, it's radical. Don't stop at just not judging other people. Deal with the log in your eye before you help your brother and sister with the sin. Do you see this rule? It's a proactive, it's an offensive activity that the church is supposed to have. Do you guys get it? Okay, let me give you the second thing. I want you to see that it's an exclusive rule. In other words, I don't want you to forget who he's talking to here. He's talking to the disciples. This, in other words, um, isn't just for everyone. If everyone did this, by the way, Tuesday would be a wonderful day. 
Would it not? If you treated, if the entire world treated each other like they want to be treated, there'd be no more war, there'd be no more terrorism, no more stealing, no more lying, no more wounds, no more crazy. It'd be wonderful. But here's what you have to understand something. Some would suggest, hey, let's just try. Let's just try. But there's a couple problems with just saying to the world, hey, let's all go do the golden rule. One is, this is a distinctive call for God's people, kingdom people. Two, it's an impossibility without the power of the Holy Spirit. You understand? You can't ask people to get it when they can't get it without Jesus. You can't ask them to love selflessly without being loved selflessly by the Savior. You can't. It's a spiritual impossibility. I call this the, the, uh, the gospel, so what? This is what the good news does to sinners stuck and broken in sin. He changes. Jesus changes us. And that's when the lights come on and that's when you can look at something like this. Treat others the way you want to be treated and see it happen. To actually see it happen. It's the reflection of our belief that Jesus is God. It's, it's not a call apart from Christ. It's, it's not a doable activity apart from Jesus. It is simply the summation of all that Jesus has said for those who are broken over their sins, who are absolutely certain they're rescued by the one and only Savior. That's who this call is for. It's exclusive. Church, love others as you want to be loved. Treat others as you want to be treated. Make sense? Okay, that's, that's the second part. Here's the third part of what I see in this verse. It's an exclusive, an inclusive rule. In other words, I want you to notice the first or second word, at least in verse 12. So whatever, you see that word? You might have the NIV or the NASB. It actually says in everything. So stop for a second. This is what he means. This is what the king means when he's defining how and who we treat this to. The kingdom is life applies to everything all of the time. I don't know if you keep mental lists of things that it doesn't apply to. You probably don't, because I don't, but I know they're in there. If they cross me, if it goes bad. This kingdom living, treating others the way I want to be treated, applies to everyone who's convenient and easy to treat that way. Not when it's not. When it's difficult, it doesn't apply. But here's what Jesus says. In everything, every situation you face without exception, and it looks good in written form, I understand that, but here's how it it plays out. When you've been hurt and burned by a person, when, when someone betrays you, Jesus says, in everything, forgive and love like you would want to be treated. Are you playing that story out in your mind? You want people to be kind to you? Be kind every time. You want people to be honest with you? Be honest every time. You want people to be considerate of you and your feelings? Then be considerate of others' feelings all the time. That's what you need to do. In everything, Jesus says. When Jesus said, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God and then your neighbor yourself. This is what he means. In everything. That's how we do this. The only way to obey that commandment is is by loving others like this, period. Okay, that's it. That's the Sermon on the Mount. All the content, every bit of instruction that Jesus has used to describe what he is like as king and what it's like to live under his rule has been described for us in in this passage that we've looked at. So what do you think? I don't know what you're ready for. I don't know what you came for today, okay? Um... But the rest of this passage is all about confrontation. 
It's all about invitation. It's all about asking questions of your heart. So I got I to gotta do it. What do you think? What do you think about the call of King Jesus? What do you think of him taking the world that you know and spinning it upside down and saying, no, it comes through smallness and meekness and brokenness and joy comes that way? What do you think of this? What do you believe in? What will you do? It really comes down to that, doesn't it? It comes down to a decision. (laughs) It's what Jesus does in verse 13. He gets done with all this issue of the kingdom and his rule, and then he says, what about you? And this is what he says, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are fuel, a few. Jesus gives another commandment here. It's a commandment, it's an imperative. Enter by the narrow gate. What is the narrow gate? The narrow gate is not a place. The narrow gate is a person. Jesus is the narrow way. He's the exclusivity of this hope that we're talking about. That's what Jesus said in John 10, verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You only get salvation. You only get joy. You only get this through me. That's what he says. He is the narrow way. The whole sermon has been a conversation about the kingdom where Jesus is its king. That's what this whole thing has been for us. And he's simply asking us here now, make your decision. Follow me. Enter now. Now that you know what it is, now that you know that it's the opposite, now that you know it's everything you're hoping for and other things, come this way. Come through me, this narrow way, and you will receive it. That's the the question I guess we need to answer. Are we going to? Will you admit your need? That's how we started this sermon. (laughs) Happy, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I suppose you can't even get out of the first sentence without having to ask some serious questions. Am I? Do I recognize that inside is dark and twisted, broken and incapable? There's an amount of religion I could ever do to fix my problems. There's no part of sincerity or desire that would fix my problems. I need some help somewhere else. I need a righteousness not of my own. Jesus has come the narrow way. Will you believe in me? Now, I've got to make certain that we uh, understand something here. How will we enter? If Jesus is the narrow way, how, how do you get there? It's faith. It's faith alone in Christ alone. That's, that's what we talk about all the time. That's what he's saying from the very beginning. Will you admit your need? Will you recognize your spiritually bankrupt? Will you believe in Jesus? Now, I've got to make certain we understand something in this as we go on. You've heard me say this a thousand times if you've been around. I believe, I believe the scriptures teach this, and you will give a hearty amen. We are saved by Christ alone, by faith alone. Amen? There is nothing else added to salvation other than the work of Jesus applied to sinners by faith, period. But you've also heard me say this a thousand times. Jesus never saves anybody. He also doesn't transform, right? He saves you unto the likeness of himself. You are in the process of becoming like Jesus if he has totally saved you by faith alone, right? Nothing saves us but faith alone in Christ alone. But this saving faith that we confess isn't alone. It's never alone. It always includes the work that he does in us. Look at verse 21. This is what Jesus says, not my words, his words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? What? Say it louder. Who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. True saving faith, according to Jesus, works. 
True saving faith loves. True saving faith endures. True saving faith sacrifices. True saving faith perseveres. Not perfectly. We know that. But persistently. Right? Fight the good fight. Our whole life. I got many, many days where I've fallen off the wagon. Many, many accusations can be made against me. But I love Jesus. And we're moving forward. And you can say that of your own heart if it's, if it's true faith. This, this says it in other places in scripture, but let me just remind you, James tells us, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Good question. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's like you're afraid to say it. You know, it's self-condemnation, right? I don't do that. You gotta ask questions. The only way to enter the kingdom is faith in Jesus, knowing that faith in Jesus is a doing faith that transforms us into the image of Jesus. He is not gonna take you and keep you like you are. Everything starts to come apart in a good way. All right? So we've answered a couple questions. What is the narrow way? It's Jesus. How do we enter it? By faith alone, a, a faith that transforms us. And he, let's answer this question. Why is the gate so narrow? That's what he says. The gate is narrow in verse 14. Verse 13, enter by that narrow gate. This is, by the way, the specific problem the world has with Christianity. It's what Jesus means by the narrow way. They hate that. Here's what he means. The narrow way is I am exclusive. I am specific. I am the polar opposite to what your flesh is inclined to. It's exclusive because there aren't any other solutions to the sin problem and the separation between God and man. Jesus said himself, I am the way, exclusive way. I am the life and I am the truth. No one comes to the Father. No one is saved. No one's sin is forgiven. No one has future hope for tomorrow unless they come through the narrow way, me. Now listen, I, I, I know, I know, because I've talked to so many people, that is so offensive, isn't it? Because it confronts some things in us. I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Jesus says, it's only him. It's narrow because every other Jesus plus combination in your life needs to be abandoned to follow Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm okay with the fact that you discover that over your spiritual lifetime. But you can't add Jesus to all these other affections and have him. He will in his loving grace and his perfect timing remove all those other affections, all these other idols, all these other blasphemies in your life so that when it's all said and done, Jesus is your only hope. That's where this is going. Otherwise, we don't have worship. Okay? But the only way you have Jesus is to abandon all your other pluses. To let it go. It's narrow because you can't take it with you. It's, it's got to go. It's also not natural. It's supernatural. I can't emphasize that enough. It's people possessed and transformed by the spirit of the living God to do the impossible. The Sermon on the Mount is the impossible without Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, th think about it for a second. You have to really give up your rights to follow Christ. Who can do that? Who, who could possibly do that? Only people possessed by the power of the Spirit of God. That's how it happens. But what happens to many, 
the many that Jesus refers to here is this, I object. I, I totally object to that exclusivity. There, sh- there shouldn't be only one way to God. After all, I'm sincere in my way. I'm committed to my way. I'm doing my way the best way I know how. Who are you to try to judge my way and say it's not acceptable to whatever God? And, and you know, kind of hidden behind those objections is a couple of things. One is an accusation that somehow God isn't just. <laughs> like, God, I, I know whatever depiction you have of God, that he's just not playing fair. He's making it unnecessarily hard. He favors some more than others in that sense, that he doesn't hold that same righteous standard for all. And so he's not counting on the curve like I'm hoping he does. So they're accusing God of being unjust, like you don't deserve his judgment, or I don't deserve it. Or it's the assumption, how arrogant is this, that we know better than God. I know you've got this exclusive narrow way called Jesus, but God, I've got a better plan. I've got a more open plan. I've got a a better thing. More people can make it if you go my way. It's a total arrogant position. One writer I was reading this week put it better than I could ever, so let me just read you his thoughts. We wouldn't question the justice and the goodness of the scientists who found the one cure for the great plague. So why do we question God when he has provided the only one cure for our great plague? Thus the question, why so narrow? Is, the question of in, is a question of ingratitude and insubordination. It is a, um, as contemptible as putting Sir Alexander Fleming on trial for only giving us penicillin. Make sense? Like, who are we, crippled, dead soul, to look at the only provision for life and say, not fair? Who are we to look at the doctor of the heart says, I've got your cure. I've got it right here. Here it is. It's the only way. It's Jesus. And you go, can you give me some options? I want some options. And the options have to include me as God. So give me that option. It's, it's an arrogant, heretical position. I, I, let, me, let me get confrontational for a second. I have to say this, because the church is large, it's always true. Some of you right now are trusting in another way. You are. You're hoping that somehow God's not paying attention to you to the level that I've described. You're hoping that maybe some of those thoughts before, that maybe he'll just change his mind or grade on a curve or accept other options. Jesus calls that thought the wide way. And Jesus here in this Particular passage, the king of the world suggests to you, more than a suggestion, commands you to enter the only way. He's the only way. To come to him, to come through him only, to be changed by him and for him. That's this whole game plan. We go through Jesus to become like Jesus. Make sense? That's where he's going with our life. He's already promised us happiness for our brokenness. How absurd is that? He's already told you that what you're holding on to, your treasures don't work and they can't last. He's, he's already showed you the stress and the worry of your life apart from him. That's what this whole sermon has been about. So come to him in faith. Now, there is something sad in, in Jesus' words, and I have to bring up that too. It's the word many. Do you see it? Where he says at the end of 13, talking about this easy, wide way that leads to destruction and those who enter it, and are by it are 
are many. Let's answer this question. Why do so many people not come to Jesus? Why do so many people choose to avoid and go right around the king of glory? Why do they do that? Let me answer it in a different way, all right? Instead of trying to answer the question, why is maybe God's way so narrow, let me, let me answer it this way. Why do so many people go around him, right? Why do people go so far wide to get around Jesus? Let's do that. Let me give you the answer. I think there's a couple of them obvious in our text. We dealt with this last week. It's verse 11 of chapter seven. You ready? I hope this doesn't hurt too bad because you're evil. I'm evil. Why do people dodge King Jesus? Because we're evil. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts. Jesus puts that blanket statement on every woman, man, and child. We're evil. One writer I was reading said this, the doctrine of original sin is the most verifiable doctrine in the entire Christian faith. (laughs) Look in the mirror. You got children? Do you ever have to teach them how to lie? Ever have to sit down, hey, brother, I want to tell you, when you get ready to rebel, I know you don't know what that means, but it's really good. Do it this way. Stand up to authority. Pretend like you know better. That's what you do. You don't have to tell them anything. It is by nature. Program. Great, 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 great. Go back several greats. Grandpa Adam plunged the entire human race into this condition called sin. Heart is twisted and broken and bent against God. And it's evil. That's what he says. Everything in our faith, everything that Jesus has been saying hinges on this particular truth. You can't have all that Jesus suggests unless you agree with what he just said in verse 11. You who are evil. Our entire faith hinges on this. God knows the real us. He knows me. Uh, He knows my intentions. He knows my motives. He knows the actions I try to cover up and clean up. He knows the stuff I've yet to invent. He knows the piles I'll find myself in the future. He knows it all. He knows every bit of it. And all he simply asks of us, just admit it. Just just say it. Just call it like it is. You who are evil. Why do people dodge Jesus? Because they don't want to say that. They don't want to admit that they've got a problem, and the problem's in the heart. It's not condition. It's not somebody else's fault. It's not culture. It's here. Dead in its transgressions and its sins. You admit that, you get Jesus. You get Jesus, you get joy. That's what he promises in the Sermon on the Mount. A life forever. Joy now, purpose now. You get that in Jesus. You just got to admit you got a problem. Why do people go the wide way? He tells us one of the reasons here in this passage. Because it's easier. Right? Easy is that broad way. To go the wide way, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to think. You don't have to repent of sin. You don't have to do what I just suggested you do. Call yourself evil. You don't have to do that. You don't have to confess any sin. You don't have to come to grips with your reality. You don't have to love. You don't have to serve. You don't have to sacrifice. You have to do absolutely nothing. You know why people go around Jesus. It doesn't cost a thing. Just go the easy way, right? There's another reason why people go around Jesus. Verses 15 through 20. False prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their, by their fruits. Jesus says, beware. Heads up. Like, put your head on a swivel, because they're around. Beware, beware of false prophets, okay? Jesus, by the way, didn't say, beware of atheists who are accusing your Savior, did he? He didn't say, um, beware of crazy cult leaders. You know the ones? They write books about them. They do exposés on TV about these crazy people. He didn't say, watch out for those crazy cult leaders. He didn't say, watch out for the Republicans or watch out for the Democrats or watch out for anything else. He said, watch out for sheep, people who look like you. The terminology he uses here, verse 15, who look like in sheep's clothing, look like a Christian. Visually, they could be sitting next to you. He says in verse 21, who talk like you do. Lord, Lord, Lord. Similar phrasing. People who act like you. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do many miracles? Think about how subtle this is, church. Jesus warns us. One of the ways you will derail from seeing King Jesus is someone else will tell you there's another way, and it'll be a small move. And these people will look like you, talk like you, and act like you. Heads up. Warning. Okay? I'm, uh, I told you this before. We have a preaching collective on Wednesday. I'm probably the one who gets the least out of it, not because I'm smart. I just don't remember. So you do 10 days out. I got to start all over anyway. So, um, but this week, we were doing this passage on Wednesday. So I was in the thick of it when we went to Preaching Collective. And we were talking about this passage. And I felt conviction um, about this. Because I'm not prone to name names. I don't get in the pulpit and say, beware of John Smith. He's a bad man. You know, I don't do that. Um, but I asked the question of the guys, should we? Like if my job is to protect the sheep, if Jesus' job is to protect the sheep, he warns us. In fact, in his ministry, he calls people out. He looks them right in the face and says, that's a bad one right there. And, and we don't do that very often. I, I wondered if, if I'm failing you. Um, relax, I'm not going to name names. Um, <laughs> if you ask me, no, don't ask me. I don't want that either. Um, if we're ever sitting in a counseling appointment and you throw something stupid up, I'll hit it, I promise. But I don't from a pulpit because there's not enough time, context, and to unpack all of it. It's not what it's for. But I do know this, and I'm going to say it out loud. Some of you are listening to the wrong people. As much as the internet has helped us, it's hurt us because now everyone can influence you. And Jesus warned us, in that day, in that day, What's he referring to? Some future tense day. Some future tense day, my sheep, we're going to hear different people who will act like, talk like, and walk like you, and they're going to try to lead you around Jesus. Think about it, church. There's some people you're listening to you shouldn't listen to. Some people that have a subtle, maybe a subtle adjustment on what it is by faith alone in Christ alone. Some subtle thing where it includes your effort and you'll lose it all. Some little thing that darts you off from the path of following the king and making more of you than, than the text tells us. I just have to warn you. The, the Bible here, passage specifically describes the many leaders. Um, I can't help but read this and say, it sounds like our day. Leaders, church leaders, have made much of themselves. He says it specifically outwardly, you know, hey, they're sweet and they're kind and they're 
leaders and their influencers, but inwardly, ravenous wolves. The word ravenous means swindlers. You want a great word to describe how I feel about all that stuff? Okay. Jesus simply says, no, no, no worries, no panic. Look at their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. So that should be some questions we ask. Is their teaching consistent with the Sermon on the Mount? Is their fruit of their life, is the fruit of their life consistent with the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount? That's the question we should ask. Does, does it lead to, to self-denial or self-indulgence? Now, you can picture these types of leaders. They're everywhere. Does it lead to upholding Scripture or diminishing the Scripture? Does it, lead, does it lead to some sincerity of life or some kind of hypocrisy? Does it lead to resisting sin or diminishing or minimizing sin? Does it lead to using money that God gives or loving the money that God gives? Does it lead to humility or arrogance? Does it lead to love? Church, it's not wrong to measure that. It should be consistent with what Jesus says here. Let me give you one more reason uh, that people go the wide way. False profession. Verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I've got to say this too. Some of you are trusting in the wrong profession. That happens. I'll, I'll give you my own experience. Pastor's kid, grew up in a church, right? Um, part of what we did was everything my dad did. And I was a part of a, a, a club, a team called the Bible Memory Association. And uh, what you did was you memorized scripture and you got prizes for memorizing scripture. And the ultimate prize was Bibles, right? So I had Bibles everywhere because I had to do it. And I went to a Bible Memory Association Bible camp. Sounds like a hoot, right? So I went there (laughs) and I got a Bible for attending the camp. And in the front of the Bible, it says, this was my name back then, Timmy, prayed to accept Christ, age six, 1960. Six or something like that. And uh, the funny thing about it is I didn't get saved until I was 20. There's a gobload of people who've walked an aisle and raised a hand, made a confession, went to summer camp, did all sorts of stuff, had a moment, emotional moment. I think I feel closer to Jesus and you're calling it saving faith. I'm telling you, please, please, Jesus is imploring you to ask, is he your king? Are you trusting in something that does not deliver whatsoever? Are you trusting in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life? You, between you and the Holy Spirit, I would never know. Between you and the Holy Spirit, you, you ask and answer that question, all right? Here's what Jesus said, and I'll finish with this. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I think that's the only way we can actually measure whether we are buying in to the Sermon on the Mount, and the King's rule in our life. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I just pray for us. Um, Clearly, Jesus is trying to call his sheep to conviction and to follow. So we do the same. Lord, I gotta believe that there are people here who want Jesus now because your spirit's working in their heart. I pray they do come in repentance and faith. For the rest of us, Lord, I just pray that we continue to submit, submit ourselves to the lordship of our King. We love him, we want to serve him, we want to be like him. Help us through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.